The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Coming up, Dow 20,000. We've been talking about it a lot, but what does it really mean? What does the Dow Jones Industrial Average really mean? What is this index? What is this tool that measures Wall Street? To discuss Dow 20,000 and the index and its history, we are joined today by Manhattan College professor Charles Geist. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Money Beat Show. Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser, in the studio in New York City. Mr. Grosser, how are you on this fine day? I'm very good. I'm you very are good. Yeah, yeah. You sure about that? I think I am. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. We had we had a we had a we had a dodgy kind of morning a little bit, don't you think? It was a little. Yeah. Trying to get some of those things out. Our our features this morning. Well, well, I I have a conversation with Ben. Go Austin. a little behind the. We, we can let the, we can let the listeners get a little behind the scene. It was a little. Not not every morning. I know it looks smooth, right? When you see it all published, it looks perfect. I know it does. You don't. Have it to rarely tell us, is. But, oof, oof, dot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rarely is. Uh, as we are all have been for. It feels like a lot longer than it probably is now, as we've all been waiting for Dow 20,000. This is a good time, I think, for us to kind of take a step back and look at this this thing. Well, I think I mean, I mean, I think the big question it's been in the newsroom and I think, you know, probably people um, outside the newsroom, um, you know, and across Wall Street have asked, does does 20,000 matter? Why does it matter? Um, and I think it's important to you know probably put this into context, right? And perfect word, Grosser, put it into phrase, put it into context to help us do that. We are joined today by Charles Geist, who is a professor of economics and finance at Manhattan College, and is author of of myriad books. Charles, I'm not even going to read them all, but I'll read some of the the more recent ones. Uh, Beggar Thy Neighbor, A History of Ursary and Debt, Wall Street, A History, Collateral Damaged, The Marketing of Consumer Debt in America. Charles, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, so, so Dow Jones Industrial Average, created in 1896, had, I believe, 12 stocks in it originally. They were literally industrials. I mean, you look at the, the components today, and it, it's it's... Not. It's, it's blue <laughs> chips, but not just industrial. Back then, it was just industrials. 130-year history has changed a lot, has really been the tracker of Wall Street. Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say, like, to, to sort of start off, if you could sort of lay kind of um, a, a view of what investing, the investing world looked like in 1896 when the, the Dow 1886. was 18. I, I misspoke. 18, I thought it was 1896. I spoke correctly. It was 1896, yeah, yeah. and then I got mixed up. The, the company was founded in like 1888 or something. Yeah. My Anyways, what, what Why don't the, we let the expert tell us yeah. what the dates are instead of these <laughs> half-cracked reporters? No, I think you've got it right. The company was founded in the 1880s, and yeah. the index was introduced in the late 90s. Right. But so, what did what did the what did the investing world look like? If you were trying to invest in stocks, what what were sort of the, some of the pitfalls that you faced, and how many people were investing in stocks? Were bonds more popular um, at that during that period? Uh, you know, it wasn't a lot different than it is today. I mean, it's it's a crude outline of what we see today. Uh, certainly, the bond market was bigger than the stock market uh, as it is today. 
in, in total. Uh, but at that time, the the stock market was a place which was dominated by um, what we today call bulls and bears, for lack of a better term. It was an operational term terms at that time. Uh, it, it's the market swung back and forth, mostly on um, rumor, emotion, as well as economic events. But the information flow in the market was not very good, which is why the um, Dow Jones eventually came up with the 12 stock industrial average. Uh, in other words, if if a newspaper person said, for instance, that the market was up today, uh, it was he or she was probably correct. But on the other hand, it wasn't well measured. Right. So it needed something, and of course the bellwether stocks, the big ones at that time, uh, to give at least some semblance of order to the marketplace, uh, sort of dispel rumors and quiet emotions a bit so there was at least something statistical to refer to simply than the ticker tape yeah and you know, which was a sequence of numbers which could baffle anybody right and it's interesting because on the one hand yes the index is is strictly speaking it can be used as an informational tool right but i think part of it what was was part of it sort of marketing of wall street and and, and almost like a pr function to kind of paint yes. the street in a different light Yes, it was, because um, at that time in the in the 1890s, especially after some of the financial and economic crises earlier in that decade, um, Wall Street and big business were not exactly in favor. That was This was becoming the period of the uh, of antitrust sentiment, of anti-big business sentiment. Mm-hmm. So th- this helped a lot to at least bring a little order to a market which needed a good public relations shot in the arm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Orton, the one thing that I do know about 1896 is wasn't that the the McKinley William Jennings Byron presidential year where he did the famous cross of gold speech? Yep. Yeah. It was so, indeed, and um, it, it's not unlike what we've been hearing today. Uh, no, the context a little different, but you know, you, you st- it, there are there are great similarities, at least in general. How what was the sort of reaction to um, the Dow when it was you know sort of launched? How important was it right off the bat? Actually, it was a fairly sleepy affair. Uh, the stock market was a pretty cozy place at the time. Um, traders, uh, the ordinary floor trader and specialists, pretty much had things their own way, unless something intervened from the outside. So as a result, uh, they weren't particularly happy to hear it hear about the new the new mm-hmm. index either uh, it took a bit of time i mean wall, wall street and the new york stock exchange were always a little bit slow to react to uh what we consider positive news looking back under that at the time it was probably an intrusion into their business but they came around when when did it start gaining sort of because one of the re- one of the things we always talk about it being important today is that in the mindset of the general public that's how you know Wall Street did that day you know they hear you know the mm-hmm. Dow when did it start taking on you know that importance in the general public's mindset? It took about ten years. Um, there was a panic in 1907. And probably more importantly for for New York Stock Exchange, at least history, and the Dow's history, since they were essentially the same thing, Mm. was the closing of the stock exchange during uh, World War I for a few months um, as the war broke out. At that time, it became pretty obvious that um, the Dow's levels, 
levels of activity uh, had become important to the economy, to people who were trying to understand the stock market and its role in the economy. So it, it took about it took about ten year period, but by the time the stock market actually closed up for business, um, let's say right at the beginning of oh, 1914, uh, that and, and part of that was in deference, to, of course, to Britain, uh, so there wouldn't be competing business with the London Stock Exchange, which at the time probably still exceeded the New York Stock Exchange in volume mm-hmm. as well as importance. Uh, but by that, after that period, it became pretty obvious that you couldn't do without these numbers anymore. And I, and, and I guess the next question is: What was the you, you had the Great Depression, the, the crash? What impact did that have on on you know the view of stock uh, trading uh, and the and also the Dow? Well, the the Dow got clobbered so badly that I think it lost. I mean, just off the top, it lost about 90% of its value mm-hmm. during the Great Depression after 1929. And uh, that had probably set off the worst chain reaction against Wall Street until at least the recent one. And I think that at that time, the Depression or, um, reaction was probably greater and more severe than the, the current one has been or was. And, but it also indicated when the the index loses 90% of its value, the, the economy is actually in trouble. And well, everybody knew it, and there was hmm. ma- a lo- large unemployment, um, a lot of vagrancy, people begging for food, all the usual stuff, which we've come to understand through popular literature. Uh, but the, reporting that now really underlined the nature of the problem. And in that particular co- case, it didn't help Wall Street's fortunes for the next 15, 20 years at all. Right. Let's let's take a break there. We'll come back on the other side of this message. More with Professor Charles Geist of Manhattan College about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, this is Paul Gigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington. Check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beach Show. We've got Dow 20,000 on the mind. Paul and Stephen here in the studio. And on the phone, Professor Charles Geist of Manhattan College, who is a historian of Wall Street. So we, we're, going to this, we're going to the source. We're going to the expert because we're just it, – it's weird because, like, actually our company doesn't own the Dow Jones Industrial Average no. anymore. I mean, when I first started working here almost 20 years ago, uh, we did – and it was it was ours, and and now it's not really ours anymore. No, I mean we still help pick the stocks that yes, you know, the components right, and right. stuff like that. So we have involvement in it. Right, but, we have we're on the board. Right, but we're we, yeah we no longer own we it. We don't own it. It's no, been no. separated. 
Um, I was just going to say, like, getting back to the sort of talk about the role of the depression, it just reminded me, and this has, I think, been, you know, mentioned, you know, by many people over and over, but it just my conversations with my grandmother, because I remember when I was a kid, you know, you'd see movies about business and stock trading, like Wall Street and stuff like that, and, you, you know, you, and I would talk to her, and she did not trust the stock market at all. And it was, you know, simply because she had lived through the depression, the Great Depression. Wow. Um, you know, she kept her money for the most part. She did keep her money. You know, some of her investments, you know, uh, were in a lot of the big blue chips. Um, I remember when she passed away in the late 90s, like, you know, looking at what she invested. It was like AT&T, GE and stuff like that. But for the most part, she kept it in CDs. Wow. And, and, and it sort of – she never got over the the scare of the depression. And, and was was – was that a good investment for her? What? Did she leave you a lot of money? Like, did she do well with her well, She didn't leave me any. She left you nothing. It, she stiffed I, you. I was, I was you were too. The, you were I not the favorite too, grandson. I was, well, no. It went to my uh, parents and my oh, uncles. Okay. And I was too far down the, the tree. Yeah. Uh, was there a, was there a question no, for, but for the I, professor in that? Uh, no, no, I just was commenting, just uh, talking about the scars of the depression and how they affected, yeah. you know, the view of stocks and also, you know, uh, the Dow because it wasn't really. And correct me if I'm wrong. Until like the sort of 1950s and 1960s, that really the sort of Dow, you know, came storming back, not only on a point level because I think it was 1954 that the Dow recovered right. all its losses from the Great Depression, but also in, in people's mindset mm. of sort of stock trading. Is that, is that sort of an accurate depiction? Yes, it is. Um, it was a general prosperity after the war um, and the prosperity, of course, put money in people's pockets. And that's where we got the idea originally of two cars in a driveway and, yeah. um, you know, a chicken in every pot, if you will, using a little bit of older metaphor. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was the time, and people had forgotten the stock market. I mean, I think most of our impressions of financial history, regardless of which side we sit, uh, the, the interpretations are that people have very short memories. Um, they weren't quite that short that time. You're right. I mean, from pre- roughly about 1930 to about, not say, 1954, 55, 56, somewhere in there, um, the stock market was anathema. To most people, uh, it was only when they got a few bucks in their pocket and then realized, of course, as most people do, that the rates at banks, which is where they were keeping their money, uh, wasn't good enough. So they wanted to get a little bit wealthier, and they started to venture back to the stock market. But it wasn't—it wasn't a mass thing. In other words, you, could, you would never say that the volume on the New York Stock Exchange was going to be dominated seventy or eighty percent by small investors, because that just really wasn't the case. It was still an institutional market, but there were more small investors than there were before. When did like I want to get into sort of the changes that were kind of that started coming in the nineteen late sixties and early seventies with you know sort of the rise of you know the idea of port, port, uh, portfolio theory um, and how that eventually would change the significance of the Dow Jones Industrial Average going forward. Well, portfolio theory, uh, you know, the idea basically of diversification of one's holdings. Um, which had been around since the 20s, but it, it got more it got more empirical, more mathematical in the in the 50s and 60s. Um, was actually a very good selling point for Wall Street because it meant that people should be buying more in different kinds of stocks than simply you know a, a handful. And of course, that was adopted by institutional investors who already knew the principles certainly. But uh, when it became popular, it 
turned out to be a very good marketing tool. And probably um, the other indices, uh, the Standard & Poor's indices, uh, and what the -the over-the-counter indices, which we call today NASDAQ, uh, they also became popular because people were looking at them, Mm. you know, with the stuff in them or invest in them because there was stuff in them that meant diversity. So in other words, it, it, it wasn't meant to really be a marketing tool, but it turned out to be one of the better ones Wall Street's ever seen. Hmm. Because I think probably as long as you, I mean, you've worked here longer than I have, everyone always comments, because, I mean, we work, you know, we own the, the Dow for a good portion of our careers here, and when we were writing about it, we always put the Dow first. The Dow right. was the important index for the Wall Street Journal. However, you and constantly we really still do. Yeah, we still yeah. do. But we constantly heard no one follows the Dow. Right. Everyone follows the S&P 500. On Wall Street. Yeah. And when you would hire you, when you would bring in a new employee to write about stocks, you, you know, who yeah. come from another company and was used to focusing on the S&P 500, um, you know, that you had you to tell them, no, no, like the Dow is, yeah. is so important. So when, when did that sort of switch really where the S&P 500 became, at least on Wall Street, the, the real indices that people followed? You know, that's an interesting question, and I'm not too sure you can pinpoint it exactly, but I can tell you that um, when I took my first job on Wall Street in the 1970s, um, there was more discussion of other Dow indices besides the the industrials, the transportation stuff and stuff like that, utility index. Mm. Uh, People would talk about them not quite in the same breath as the Dow Jones and 30 industrials, but they would include them. Uh, it was after that that this shift started to take place to the Standard & Poor's. So looking at that, I would say Standard & Poor's, although it had been around for a while, probably became popular in the 1980s, especially when the um, private pension plans became popular and the 401ks, the self-invested plans, became popular. Hmm. Uh, it became a way to look at the broader market simply than have to say, well, what did the 30 industrials do? What did the transportations do? What did the utilities do? You know, run down that checklist. This, this was a convenient way of mentioning them all at the same time. The S&P 500, that is. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to, to shift it a little bit to technology for a second, if we could, because I thought it was really interesting in the first segment when you mentioned that, you know, Wall Street didn't really appreciate this new tool at first, the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about also because uh, – when I was doing research on blockchain, I had come across some Wall Street history, and you mentioned the '60s and '70s grocer when you know money was money was pouring in because after you know 20 years of the post-war period, people were finally wealthy enough to kind of start trusting Wall Street and the stock market. Money starts pouring in, and the way Wall Street operated then, and Charles, you might have some firsthand knowledge of this if you started there in the '70s. In the late 60s, early 70s, they had a crisis on their hands. Too much paper. Too much paperwork. They yep. couldn't process all the paperwork. And it was really clogging up, it was really gumming up the works. It was a major crisis for them, and it took them years to come up with the technology. Companies went out of business. Yeah, there was consolidation. I mean, in fact, Sandy Weil, you know, former, you know, created Citigroup. Right, right. Um, his first, you know, big run in in Wall Street was taking consolidation during that period because of so much paperwork. Yeah. And and you look at today in the last ten years, and, and you you can see. I mean, look look at the floor of the stock exchange any morning on CNBC. I mean, it's it's a ghost town now. How has technology affected what Wall Street does, and and how does Wall Street 
you know, do they like it? Do they not like it? Like, how resistant are they to change? Well, yeah, originally um, that particular crisis was referred to as back room or a little bit less sinister sounding the back office crisis. Yeah. And um, a lot, you're right, a lot of firms did fail because they couldn't keep up with the paperwork. I mean, very similar to what happened in 1929. There was a, there was a paper backup, and that helped the indices drop during the crash. But this one was just much more of a back office crisis. And, um, of course, it was also complicated by the fact that a lot of securities were sold that never existed. This was sure. still when certificates were being being passed around. I mean, right. you know, uh, clearing involved certificates. So, of course, you found the usual mafioso were involved in that sort of thing and all kinds of other things, which, of course, gave them a very bad name, mm-hmm. a Wall Street a bad name, the back, the back offices. So eventually uh, the technology which was created, and, and this was probably about the same time that the early mainframe computers were coming online mm-hmm. to deal with problems. And that helped them immensely. Of course, Wall Street always grouses about um, additional costs. You know, the right. way they uh, will complain about regulatory costs today. So that that was their major beef at the time, that it was too expensive. But, of course, there was no alternative because they had just come back a long way from the Depression-era bad reputations. And now they were back with a bad reputation for a totally different reason. And they couldn't afford that either. So they just had to you know, straighten up and march straight ahead with the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, the other p- interesting part about that is that that was about the same time, for instance, that the uh, government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie, and not Fannie at the time, Ginnie Mae, uh, and Fannie later, and then Freddie Mac, all got started. And they were paying interest to investors monthly. And that's uh, that sort of mm-hmm. thing is unheard of. And the only way you can actually monitor situations like that is if you had computers doing, doing the job for you. Right. You know, identifying investors, finding out who needs to be paid when. Uh, so the technology was a very big deal. Hmm. When you look at Wall Street today, it has been changed significantly by technology. But I think also, you know, and I think we've we've kind of mentioned public perceptions have shifted. Um, and not even just public perceptions. I mean, there are fewer publicly listed companies today than there were, what, 10 years ago or, you know, the capital the I, I think the cap the structure of the capital markets are changing. Ways to access capital are changing, and technology is driving a lot of that. What, what and and public perception, like you know, we're talking about the depression. People have not completely forgotten what happened in two thousand and eight. You know, yeah. what do you think? Um, what, what do you think the the how does Wall Street look today from those angles, Professor? Well, no, you know, agreeing that certainly technology has changed, just changed the face of investing. But give give you one example, comparing, let's say, the Depression period with the current period. Um, some of Roosevelt's advisors, Franklin Roosevelt's advisors, had written a book in the early 30s, mid-30s, rather, um, about the changing face of the American corporation. And one of the things that they noted in the 30s, was that um, sure, the idea of owning shares was becoming passe hmm. for for the even for the small investor? In other words, owning a hundred shares in a company which was growing, creating new shares all the time and a- adding to its capital base was something which didn't have the same import that it had, for instance, in the, in the 19th century. 
Now, if you fast forward to today, where you, if someone goes out to buy a, 100 shares of Microsoft or Cisco, uh, he's got 100 shares of probably $6 billion or $5 billion outstanding. Right. So the idea of owning a company is in theory, still there, but it's not going to get you a special parking space at the annual shareholders meeting, Yeah, by any means. And I, I think that about says it all. In other words, there's been, there's been a shift in capital from smaller and medium-sized Dow companies, if there's such a thing, you know, somewhere, or yeah. S&P companies, to the larger ones. They, they, they dominate the capital-raising process, um, and it's changed the face of investing. I don't think that investors anymore believe that they're actually a shareholder in anything. You know, the right. old saying, I think, that you know, the, the, the idea of a long-term hole is something after 4 o'clock yeah. probably is still true now, more right. true now than it was before. If you get a couple of pennies, scalp it and get out of it and you know, wait for tomorrow. Yeah. What role does sort of like the, you know, passive investing and, and the, in the flow of money that we've seen, especially in the last you know, six years into the crisis into ETFs play in that sort of ownership of stocks? by your, your retail investor. Well, I think, uh, getting back to something you mentioned before, I think that that's the victory of portfolio theory. Uh, buying an ETF, a technology right. ETF, uh, whatever it happens to be, you know, pet food ETFs, for heaven's sakes, whatever they happen to be. Um, one, the, the, the flow of information because of the, uh, of the technological advances is so fast that no investor, individual at least, probably believes they can keep up with the information anymore. So, Realizing that, buys the sector through through a basket and puts his eggs in that basket. But again, how long he hangs on to it, again, I don't know. They, they, those kinds of studies are few and far between and actually hard to come by. So in other words, if I were to buy a banking ETF or a finance ETF, how long would I hang on to it? Indeterminate. Yeah. You know? But you can see the structural change, but you can't really see the turnover concept. What about the, the other question? Because the one there is one group of investors that still feels like it actually does own stocks, and that's sort of the activist investor. How much you know have they played a role in what you know? I, I think we coined in a few weeks ago more our colleague Maureen Farrell in the deequitization. You know, companies being less, being more reticent to you know go public um, in the in the in um, and the lack of, you know, the fewer public companies now on the exchange, you know, that uh, there's now, there's not, if, capital raising might come with a cost, I guess. Yeah, I think that uh, those sorts of investors, um, not to make light, but, you know, if the, if the old trigger's idea of a long-term hold is something after 4 o'clock, we're talking about a segment here who will hold until 4 o'clock a month from now. Yeah. Um, I think that what people have started to realize, I, I think if, if you go back just to choose Enron as an example, um, and that we, it doesn't actually fit your categorization, but it, it's just a shorthand way of making the point here. Um, there was a company which was touted as a long-term hold by an awful lot of securities analysts who lost their reputations because of companies like that. Yeah. They, they defrauded people. They made up stories, you know, they disguised losses and inflated their earnings. Um, when something like that happens, I think it just takes the average investor and finally puts them 
in the background. Uh, I mean, that was one of the reasons, or it forces them into the background. That's one of the reasons Sarbanes-Oxley was passed and was so mm-hmm. diff- was so hard on auditors in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. But I, I think that that probably changed the view of people. Now, when people start to leave, and that probably would include many money managers who become wary, then it leaves that market to the slice and dice guys. Um, and that, that's fine. I mean, you know, it's there. There's there's angel investors, there's vulture investors, there's restructuring guys. There's, everybody will take advantage of that. But that again will change the marketplace. I mean, it makes it look a bit more corporate than it used to before, in in the sense that it, the market is being wouldn't say manipulated. It's being dealt. It's being um, affected by people who, let's say, 50 years before. Also affected it, but to a much, much lesser extent. I think, I mean, just finally, I mean, and this is a sort of actually bring it back to the whole reason we're um, reason doing we're the, yeah, <laughs> doing this is 20,000. Um, you know, what is the, what do you feel like is the significance of that? How significant, I guess, is it? You know, I think it's long overdue. Uh, I don't know if you remember 15 years ago, there were books being written about the Dow's going to 36,000. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Something like that. Um, I think the only significance that it would have for me, if, if having this long view that I I do, um, is that probably the way the market looks at it is that if it hits that high, it's probably going to come off, off that high. Um that's been the case probably for the last 50 years. Every time the market has managed to hit an historic high, it has managed to also come off afterwards, correct itself, and then in many cases take Mark's off thing. afterwards. And I think most people feel that way about it, as, especially if you realize that they can execute orders and trade extremely quickly today in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody's wary about this number. You know, do I pull the trigger now? Do I wait until it yeah. hits twenty thousand? Right. Um, it reminds me of that trader, the oil trader, several years ago when oil first hit a hundred dollars a barrel, who wanted to be the first guy yes. to trade oil yes. at a hundred dollars a barrel, yeah. knowing full well it would back off afterwards. Yeah, right. But right. I guess he wanted to hang, you know, something on his wall at home, saying he was the guy who did it. And I, I think the same, the same situation is here. Do you think it will have us? It has the possibility of. Have, a short-term psychological impact with the mom and pop investors, and and sort of pull some of the money that we, you know, that's been on the sidelines the last several years. I think it would do that after the smoke clears. Right. Initially, um, you know, it's like a, what the Facebook offering. I mean, there's an awful lot of people who got their, <laughs> their brains beat out with right. with Facebook after its IPO, and then afterwards, of course, probably lamented the fact that they didn't hang on. Uh, I think that's just a natural reaction. You'll probably see it again here, you know, in more general terms with the Dow itself as a, as a magnet. Mm-hmm. All right. We have been speaking with Dr. Charles Geist, who is professor of economics and finance at Manhattan College and author of a number of books on the, on the street, on, on Wall Street, on the capital markets, Beggar Thy Neighbor, Wall Street, A History, Collateral Damaged, Undue Influence, uh, Charles, it has been absolutely great. I, we really thank you very much for doing this today. This is a yeah, big, big help it. for us and our listeners. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it, and we will catch up with you very soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.